All right, Luke chapter 4 is where we're going to be. Luke chapter 4. Y'all, I don't know what the deal is with the rain on Sunday mornings. Uh, I feel like we went like two years without rain on Sunday mornings, and now I feel like it's been like six months straight of rain on Sunday mornings. Yeah, at least, well, mainly. Uh, For the most part, the roof is fixed, yeah. Certainly better than it was. All right. Luke chapter 4, and again, I'm glad to be back up here. I'm very thankful to Jacob for serving us well last week. Did a great job. Uh, and uh, we're going to be in Luke 4. We're picking up on, the, on uh, the text where I left off a few uh, weeks ago. Jesus has been baptized. He's gone out to the desert for his temptations. He has made his way through that. And now our storyteller, Luke, moves to the first real public moment of Jesus' ministry. And it's full of... All kinds of intrigue, it's full of tension, uh, full, of, uh, full of all kinds of just like really like tense moments as we go through this. And uh, so I'm, I'm looking forward to getting into this. This has always been one of my favorite passages about Jesus' uh, uh, ministry. I've just kind of loved all that's going on in here and kind of how it plays out, so I'm excited to be able to preach that. Uh, this week I came across uh, some videos on social media that I thought were hilarious, and if you'll bear with me, I will get to how they will play into the sermon here in a minute. And these videos are something that every parent can uh, relate to, Uh, except these videos are not a parent, it's actually an uncle who's become pretty pretty famous on uh, TikTok, and what is happening is he is, there's a whole compilation, I mean there's like dozens of these videos, and I've just got a few of them for you, but he is teaching his niece how to pour a drink. Uh, and you can guess kind of how this is going to go. Go ahead and show these, these videos here. <laughs> you want to try to pour this into there. Let's get it. You got it. Steady hands. Yeah. Pour it in. Good job. <laughs> So, were you tricking everyone before by not stopping and overfilling it? What's what's with that? Stop. Mm-hmm. Stop. That's a good job. Now, there's, uh, all right, you can stop. It'll keep going. You can stop it on that. So, there's dozens of those videos, and, uh, and obviously she gets a little bit older, and she progressively gets better and better and better, and uh, apparently Bethann was telling me that there's a whole, uh, there's a nephew now that has come behind, and is, they're doing the same thing, and uh, I'm sure that guy is making more money than all of us combined by uh, letting his nieces and nephews pour drinks uh, into that cup, uh, but it, I, I love those clips. Those clips, I think, are Uh, so good because they show something that's universal to parenting. I don't know how this works out, but it's universal to parenting that that 
that idea of kids pouring the drinks themselves, like every parent knows that moment when the kid's like, no, I got it, I got it. And as a parent, you have that moment of dilemma of like, okay, I want to teach you independence here, but you don't got it. Like this is not going to go well, and I know that this is not going to go well. I know that this is about to be a mess, and it's like, all right, how much do I intervene here? How much do I... Uh, how much do I do this? Every parent knows that moment whenever their kid uh, kind of bows up and says, no, I'll do it myself. I don't want help. Now, maybe that's pouring a drink. Maybe that's, uh, maybe that's like jumping into a pool. Maybe that's walking up the stairs. I, I don't know. There, every kid gets to that point, though. Uh, and this is a good thing. This is, this is independence. This is self-reliance. This is how all of these things are uh, form, but, but we all know that moment when the kid says, I'll do it myself, and, and, the, and, and you're like, uh, no, there's absolutely no way you can do this yourself, no matter how much you tell them that they can't lift that heavy object, or they can't take that uh, leap, wh- whatever it is, and now parents, you tell me if you agree, when your kid makes that declaration uh, that they are going to do it themselves, There is nothing more impenetrable to their ears than the mind of a kid who has decided, I'm going to do it myself. Is that right? Like when a kid says that, you know you're sunk. There's nothing you can do to like convince them otherwise. You're just going to have to let them figure it out for themselves that they can't do. Now we can debate parenting styles and, and all kinds of different things from here. But we can all agree that there's nothing as deaf as a kid who's decided... I've got this. There's nothing as... So today's text is is going to challenge that assumption, though, that there's nothing as deaf uh, as a kid who says, I've got this, because there might be one thing that tops it. There might be one thing, one, 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 one type of person that is more unwilling to listen than a kid who has decided to do it themselves. So let's read and see if we can figure out what that one type of person is. So what's happening now is Luke is talking about Jesus' ministry. He gets right to work after, uh, after his, his baptism and his uh, temptations. He starts traveling throughout Galilee. His teaching and presumably his miracles are making waves. He's making a name for himself uh, in the region. People are taking notice. Uh, if you're a Messiah, if you are the potential political revolutionary that the Messiah was supposed to be and about to lead a revolution, you can't get off to much better start than what Jesus has here. He's, get, he's making a name for himself. Like, his popularity is going out. People know him before he even really shows up in town because the word is getting out about what Jesus is doing. So let's read in Luke chapter 4, verse 16. And he came to Nazareth, where he'd been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogues on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him, and he unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written. And we'll stop there. We'll talk about what he finds here in just a minute. But we need to get a good sense of what is happening here. We need to really get a feel for what is happening. Jesus has come back to his hometown. Luke makes a careful... uh, it's careful to note that for us. This is where he was brought up. He comes back to his hometown, Nazareth. Now, we know Nazareth has something of a, of a bad rep. 
John, in John chapter 1, you have this conversation between Philip and Nathaniel, and, and Nathaniel says, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Like a kind of mocking joke about Nazareth, kind of like we would talk about like Newport or something, right? So like, can anything good come out of there? Like, is there anything that can come good that can come from there? Like, this is what they are saying about Nazareth. It's a small town with a reputation for being uh, at best useless, if not, uh, if not uh, maybe kind of a negative rep. So when Jesus shows uh, back up in town, he's, he's a bit of a local celebrity for Nazareth. He's a bit of a local celebrity. He's the local boy making some waves throughout the region. This isn't normal for someone from Nazareth. Jesus is getting some notice. He's, he's becoming popular. Like there's, there's some, there's some like people talking about him on Twitter. There's some, there's some people out there that are saying, hey, you got to go hear this guy speak. He's, he's really good. There's a few clips that are getting out there on Instagram and people are saying, oh, oh, that sounds interesting. I need to hear what this guy's got to say. And, and people are starting to talk about him. And, and so he goes to the synagogue and he does what he's been doing in all these other towns. He starts to teach. And now the way that this would work is that uh, the, the way that the teaching was, would, would work is that uh, the teacher would, would, would go into the synagogue, would be invited into the synagogue, and they would stand up and they would select, uh, the, the text would likely be selected for them, or at least like the scroll would be selected uh, for them based off of whatever scrolls the synagogue happened to have. Most of them didn't have a complete collection. Almost none of them had a complete collection, but they would hand them a uh, a scroll, and he'd be standing in the middle of the room, and there would be something in front of him, a lot like this, where the scroll would be opened up to, and uh, and he would read. Uh, the the teacher would read the text, and then after he read the text, he would sit down in the teacher's chair that was kind of in the middle of the synagogue, and from there he would teach and he would expound on what he had just read. And so notice what Jesus does here. He, he didn't just read any random text. They didn't just hand him the scroll and he just opens it up and says, okay, here's what I'm going to read, whatever's there. It says that they handed him the scroll and when, when he saw what the scroll was, he knew what he was looking for. He went and he selected a text. He found the text. He sought out this specific text and then here's what, it's re- here's what it reads as. Luke chapter 4, verse 18. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. Because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and, recover the, and recovering of sight to the blind. To set at liberty those who are oppressed. To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and he gave it back to the attendant and he sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. I love that line. This is Luke, our master storyteller, setting this up for us. It's so good. He, he, he reads from what we know would be Isaiah 61, and he sits down, and, and Luke says, everyone has like drawn their eyes on them. He has this audience. He has those that are in attendance. He has them in the palm of his hands. Listen, as someone who, who does public speaking for a living, who has to get up here and do this every week, there is nothing quite like feeling, uh, th- quite like this feeling, where you've got everyone's attention, where everyone is fixed on you, where everyone is, is listening and trying to learn from the sermon. No one is asleep right now in Jesus' message, Right? No one is asleep. Nobody's checked out. I don't know what that feels like completely, but Jesus does right here in this moment, right? Nobody's, everybody is dialed in on what he's got to say. He has the definition of a 
captive audience. They are anxious to hear what's about to come out of his mouth. And let me just tell you, for a Messiah who's, about, who's supposed to be leading a political revolution, who's supposed to be recruiting an army, who's supposed to be building a base, who's supposed to be gaining in popularity, you can't ask for anything better than this moment that Jesus has right here in front of you. You can't ask for anything better. This is about the most valuable thing you could give someone who is a, a, a hopeful in, in gaining their popularity and, the, and their notoriety throughout Israel. This is worth its weight in gold. It is an incredible opportunity. So what does Jesus say when he's handed this opportunity with everybody fully engaged in what it is that he's saying? What does Jesus say in this critical moment in this sermon to his hometown people? This is verse 21. And he began to say to them, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said... Is this not Joseph's son? Oh man, they are loving Jesus right now. They are loving what he is saying and what he's doing. They are impressed with his boldness. They are impressed by his claim. Now, spoiler, spoiler alert, things are about to go bad here in just a minute. But right now, in this moment, things could not get better for Jesus. His hometown is proud of him. This is the kid that we've known our whole lives. This is the carpenter's son. Is he really the Messiah? Is he really the one, like the Messiah? Is that really who this is? Is this really what we're talking about? The one that has been promised? Is this really the one who's about to set us free from the yoke of Roman rule and from all of the embarrassment and shame of our past as, as all these others, as the, the Assyrians and the Greeks have ruled us before? Is this really the one who's about to do this? And he came from Nazareth. They are bursting with pride about Jesus. It's like if, if someone from here at Providence, if, 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 if one of our uh, kids that are back there right now in Prov Kids in the Bible Bowl, it's like if, if one of them ends up running for president. And they're about to announce their candidacy for, pre for president, and all the chatter is about how they've got a real shot to win here. They've got a real shot to win. They've made a name within their political party. They, they, they've made good. It is local kid made good. We'd all be proud of what, they, of, of what has come from our little town here in Jefferson City. And so, let me just ask you at this point, what would you do if you were Jesus right now? You've, you've said this much, you, you've read from Isaiah, you've read this prophecy that, that they have long applied to the Messiah, everyone is super excited about you, everyone is like, like fully on board with everything you're saying. Your popularity is growing. You've got them right in the palm of your... What do you do if you are Jesus? So again, this is like... like let's just keep this like running for, for, for president. You have, you've made your uh, announcement. They're listening to everything. You've asserted here for Jesus. He's asserted he's the Messiah. 
No doubt right now in that audience, he's got some eager, young, like, campaign staffers ready to, ready to jump on board with what it is that he's doing. The fundraising numbers would be out of this world. He could ask for money right now, and Jesus' ministry would be covered for six months, maybe a year. He could raise all kinds of money off of this little sermon in this moment that he has given. The fundraising opportunity is perfect. If he took a love offering right there, man, he'd be gold. They'd be good to go. For that matter, he could kind of whip the crowd into a frenzy. He could really get them going if he wanted to right now. He could, he could take this moment and he could say, let's amp it up a notch. Let's take it, let's take it from, a, from a seven to a nine here. Let's really get this thing going. I've been to a handful of political rallies in my life, and you can see the recipe, how it plays out very, very, it's, it's, it's easy to do this. It's not difficult to get people fired up at a political rally. It's why our politicians, and just hang with me, it's why our politicians don't know how to think, because they don't have to. All they have to do, they don't need to think. All they need to do is remember a couple of talking points to get the crowd fired up to get the votes cast, to get the funds flowing. That's all they have to do. They don't have to do anything besides that. So what do you do here if you're a skilled politician and you've got these people ready to do all of these things for you? What do you do? You throw your base some red meat, right? You, you say exactly what they want to hear. You talk about how Rome has oppressed and you talk about how it's time that we throw this off. It's time that we start a revolution. It's time that we get back what is rightfully ours. You, you get people fired up and people would be like all cheering and man, people would be like all over. This is what you do right here. You let them know all you're going to do for them if you can get just a little bit of help from them. If you can get just a little bit of help from them. If Jesus stops right now, he walks out of his hometown with a full purse, a growing entourage, and a reputation that's about to get out of control and all kinds of power. Ready to walk into the next synagogue and just keep that train rolling. Just keep on going. He has set it up perfectly. So let's see what Jesus does. Verse 23. And he said to them, doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you did in Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. So right now people are like, oh yeah, here we go. Here we go. He's really getting ready to amp this thing up. We've heard about the miracles he's done elsewhere. He's about to do it here in his hometown. I, I, he, he says, I'm sure you've heard about what else has happened elsewhere. I bet you'd like to see the same thing. That crowd must have been on the edge of their seats. It must have been all that they could do to stay seated. They, they probably were like grabbing onto their seats like, man, like white knuckles doing all they can just to stay seated because they were so excited. And then verse 24, he said, I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. This is where, like in the movie, like the soundtrack's playing in the background that's been building and like the, the drum beat's just getting a little bit faster and people are getting more excited. And then all of a sudden it comes to like this, this screeching halt and everything goes silent. Everyone kind of looks at each other and is like, what are you talking about, Jesus? What do you mean a prophet has no honor in his hometown? 
I think you've misread us here, Jesus. We're fired up. We're amped. We want to know what you're We want to see the miracles. We want to see you do this stuff. We are here. We, you've got plenty of honor here, Jesus. You've misread what's going on here. This is not an issue. Why would you say that, Jesus? Jesus goes on to tell two stories that will drastically change the mood in the room. It's such good storytelling here. Luke does such a good job. So much tension and such a dramatic kind of shift and change in the moment. Verse 25. Jesus talking. He says, But in truth, I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heavens were shut up three years and six months, and a great famine came over all the land, and Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath, a Gentile town, in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of prophet Elisha, and none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman, the Syrian. Woo, buddy. If you don't know your Old Testament history, then you don't know what has happened here, but Jesus has just dropped a massive bomb in the room. He has absolutely taken the air out of the room. If you remember our Prophets and Kings series that we uh, did when we looked at Elijah and Elisha and we looked at their stories. In the first story, Elijah had just given his prophecy to the king uh, and, and, uh, about how this drought was going to come. And now this drought has come and he, like everyone else, is suffering from the effects of this drought, this three and a half year uh, drought. <clears throat> And God sends uh, Elijah out, but he doesn't send him to anyone in Israel. Instead, he sends Elijah uh, uh, not to his Jewish brothers and sisters, but to a Gentile widow's home. And this is the, this is the story of the, 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 the widow that had the, the oil and the cake, and she just like kept making it, never, never ran out, if you'll remember that one. God isn't helping someone from Israel, but helping a Gentile. Elijah isn't ministering to the people of Israel, but to someone completely apart from Israel. Elisha's story is the one where uh, there's this uh, kind of a bit of an epidemic of leprosy within Israel that had spread to many. Um, all kinds were affected, but no one in Israel gets healed. Instead, it was the commander of the army of Israel's enemy that God chose to heal. Not anyone in Israel. I'm not sure who taught Jesus about preaching to a crowd, uh, but this is about the worst possible thing he could have said right here. You get a big F in your preaching homiletics class for this one, Jesus. This is about as bad as what you could have done. He took that fired up, proud crowd that was marveling at his words, and he basically says this. Don't get too excited about my ministry because once you find out what it's going to look like, you're going to hate me anyway. What in the world? I mean, even if this is true, why say it? Why not at least pocket the money first? Why not at least kind of get some celebrity out of it? Why not just ride the wave of popularity, build your crowd, get some followers on Instagram, become an influencer, and use your platform for good, Jesus? Why wouldn't you do that? But this is a pattern that we will see all throughout the Gospels, that Jesus steadfastly will refuse to do at almost every single point in his ministry. One of my favorites is if you, if you look in uh, John... Uh, 
John 6 and 7. It's one of my, my favorite like, parts of, of Jesus' story in his ministry. Is, is he, he feeds the 5,000 and, and everyone is really paying attention to him. They're like, okay, this dude's legit. He just fed everybody here on this hillside. This is amazing what he has done. And his first sermon after the feeding of the 5,000 is, if you don't eat my flesh and drink my blood, you will have no part with me. And immediately his disciples are like, come on, Jesus. Not the flesh and blood sermon right now. Seriously? That's what you've got to do right now? Like, why would you say that? These people were like excited about you. And now you say we've got to eat your flesh and drink your blood? What in the world? It says, what they say is, Jesus, this is a hard teaching. Who can handle this? Like, come on. You could do better than this. And then it says, many of his disciples left and stopped following him. And Jesus turns to Peter at that point and he says, are you going to leave too? And Peter's response is one that has meant so much to me over the years. He says, where else would we go? You alone have the words of eternal life. Love that story. Absolutely love it. But Jesus does this over and over and over again. Right when he's on the cusp of just kind of blowing up his ministry in this like massive all kinds of attention, he does something like this. It's like, just crash the plane hard. This is what Jesus does. Every single time the momentum is going and, the, and, and everything is growing, he, he comes with this teaching that basically stops it all dead in his tracks. Why does Jesus do this? There's a lot of answers to that, but I think the most simple answer is because he didn't care one bit about drawing a crowd. That was never his goal. He knew how fickle the crowd was. He knew how easy it was to get them fired up, and he knew how easy it was to watch them walk away. He knew how to work the crowd if he wanted to, but he didn't want a crowd that was whipped up into a frenzy. He wanted a crowd that was ready to die, and those are two very different crowds. He came to do something far greater. Anyone can draw a crowd, but not anyone can set the captives free. Anyone can say the right thing at the right moment and create a rally. Again, just look at our politicians. It's not difficult. It's not hard to make the crowds love you. But give good news to the poor. Help the blind to see. Proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Only Jesus could do that, and those things aren't about crowds. But here's the thing, the Jewish people really thought that that they were supposed to be like this thing, that they were really supposed to be the ones that 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 were charged up for this Messiah. They thought the Messiah was going to do all of those things. They they thought the Messiah was going to do all of those things. So this isn't bad what Jesus is saying, but the Messiah would not be a suffering servant like Isaiah had talked about. He would be a reigning ruler. He would set the captives free because he would be the man in charge. And if he's in charge, that's what he gets to do. He gets to be the one to decide who goes free and who is captive. But he's going to need an army to do it. And so a crowd made sense for them. But for Jesus, he was the only one that could accomplish what he came to do. The Jewish people, though, they were certain of what this Messiah would be and what he would do. They were certain. And they were certain of what their role in this revolution would look like. Either to sit at his right hand or to ride on his coattails all the way to Jerusalem. They were certain that would be their their role. 
the Messiah was for them. And what Jesus said in this small little sermon here was, I am the Messiah. And they like that part. But what I'm about to do really isn't going to be about or for you. I've got much bigger plans in mind. God has always hinted that was the case with Elijah and Elisha and so many others. But you're about to see it in action with me. And that little sermon, that little, that little nugget there, Jesus was about to learn who that one person is that is more stubborn, more unwilling to hear than a kid that says, I'll do it myself. It's the person that says, I've got God figured out and I have nothing new to learn. That person is more stubborn than that little kid. The, 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 the person who, who goes to church is the, the longtime churchgoer who says, I've got my righteousness figured out and I know what to do to accomplish it. It's the church member that says, I, I know my Bible better than you and I don't need to listen to you. It's the Christian that says, I know God and I know how much he needs me. It's the religious person that says, I'll do it myself. That's the person who has ears that cannot hear. Friends, there is nothing more deaf than a Christian who thinks they've got it all figured out and nothing to learn. Only instruction and correction to give. Only religious policing to do. And our churches are full of them. And what happens when this is how we approach Jesus? Let's keep reading. Verse 28. When they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. And they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so they could throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went away. So what happens? We run Jesus right out of our midst and we try to throw him off a cliff. These Jewish people had turned on Jesus in an instant. Why? Because they couldn't bear to hear what he had to say. What he had said was, they aren't quite as, 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 as special as they thought. They aren't quite as, as secure as they had imagined. They thought being God's chosen people meant that they could live how they wanted, do what they wanted, and be who they wanted. And God was bound to bless them with a Messiah at some point. What they didn't realize is that being God's chosen people didn't free them from responsibility. It married them to responsibility. You see, when Jesus, it said, what, when Jesus says in this little sermon that the, the, the Messiah would, would not be about furthering their kingdom, but his, they didn't have a category because in their mind, those were one and the same. But Jesus says the kingdom of God is not the same as what you are, Israel. These two are not one and the same. Blasphemy, blasphemy to a Jew. That's why they were ready to kill him. Because it was blasphemy and that was the penalty for it. They had assumed anything the Messiah did would be to make their lives better, their nation stronger, and their agenda central. Turns out this Messiah wasn't going to have an agenda that wasn't primarily about them and wasn't primarily about who they were and wasn't primarily about making them great. And when Jesus called them out on it, they ran him out of town, literally. And hear this, 
he never went back. There's no other story in the Gospels where Jesus ever goes back to Nazareth, never went back to his hometown. His rejection by them and vice versa, his rejection of them was nothing short of final. Friends, I'm quite certain that we would run Jesus out of most of our churches today. Run him right to a cliff. Our churches are not full of humble people desperately seeking a God that has set them free. But an arrogant people that know better than Jesus how God works. I'll say this. I'll do something a little bit, do something a little bit abnormal that I don't want. I'll soften my point a bit for Providence this morning, for us here this morning. I don't sense that same level of arrogance and unwillingness to listen here as I do in much of the church today. I don't sense that in the same level, so I, maybe I soften that a little bit, but that's only more of a reason to be on our guard for it. So ask yourself, how do you approach our time here together on Sunday mornings? How about when a friend confronts you with sin? Or when teaching comes up that you disagree with? What is your instinct? When you read the Bible, how quick are you to rationalize away the things that you think are extreme and, take, uh, and, 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 and that would take you out of your comfort zone? How quick are you to be like, well, that's not really what he meant. That's not exactly what he meant there. Fundamentally, what is your posture when you hear someone teach, read the scriptures, or talk to a friend? Is your fundamental posture to listen, to learn, to care? Or is it to listen, to judge, to correct, to instruct? Don't misunderstand me. There's a place for correction. I'm not saying there's not. But the question I have is, what is your posture? Do you come before Scripture ready to submit, or do you come before Scripture ready to say, this is what I think it needs to say? Don't answer that like off the cuff either. Like, think about that. It's a tendency in all of us. The reality is, all of us walk in here and we think we've got this figured out, kind of. We, we think we generally know what's going to be said. We think we generally have an idea about most things. We, we generally think that. And so often the only instruction that we can hear is instruction that's, that agrees with what we already believe. That agrees with what we think we already know. And any instruction contrary to that is immediately like, well, that, I don't, I'm not going to listen to that. And I, listen, I'm not, I'm not preaching at you. I'm preaching to myself here. Like this is, this is trying to figure out what is our fundamental posture towards Scripture, towards Jesus, towards the Spirit. Is it that we submit ourselves to it or that we stand over it? How do we submit ourselves to correction? I'm telling you, there's nothing more deaf than someone that thinks they've got it all right and they need no correction. Or how about this? How often is your fundamental approach to righteousness, I'll do it myself? And what I mean by that is, how much of your life do you spend trying to prove yourself to God that you're worth it, that you're worthy of Him? You won't get there. You'll chase it your whole life. But for so many of us, this is what our faith is built on. Like this effort to, to get to Sunday and feel like you can hold your head up high when you walk in this door. Because you did good this week. Because you memorized a lot this week. Because you prayed enough this week. 
Because you didn't do this sin or that sin this week. That's not how our righteousness works. We cannot produce a righteousness from within us. Our righteousness is an imputed righteousness. It is a righteousness that is given to us from Christ. From the outside. Try as much as you may, unlike this kid who's figured out how to pour their drink into a cup, you're never going to figure it out. It's not possible. But praise be to God, He came to set the captives free. He came to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. That is a reference to Jubilee. And what happens in Jubilee? All debts are forgiven. That's what the Messiah came to do. But you can't earn enough to get your debts forgiven. That's the Messiah's agenda. The beauty of the gospel is that it subverts at every turn. Remember, this is, this is, Luke's, this is Luke's telling. It's going it's to happen in almost every story that we talk about. It subverts at every turn. It works in ways and in people we would not expect. It doesn't thrive on popularity and power, but on humility and those that are poor in spirit. It doesn't submit to our agenda, and it doesn't submit to our kingdoms. And hear me, this is a very good thing for you. You don't think it is because you think your kingdom is the best kingdom because you built it, right? You think it's the best kingdom because you built it to serve you. And you think if Jesus would serve your kingdom, that would be the best thing for you. That would be the worst thing for you. So Jesus doesn't come to get on your agenda and to build your kingdom. He comes with his agenda for his kingdom, and that is the best news you can have. Because our kingdoms are too small and our agenda is too short-sighted. The best news you can hear this morning is that Jesus was about his agenda and didn't submit to yours. Because your agenda would have put you on a throne and left you without hope. But his agenda puts him on a throne and a cross. And it gives you your only So Jesus, in this little moment in his own hometown, he doesn't seize upon the opportunity to grow his platform. He doesn't seize upon the opportunity to let them kind of walk away with their misunderstanding in order to get the applause of the crowd, in order to get the money of the crowd, in order to get the following of the crowd. He corrects their understanding, and it almost gets him killed. But it wasn't his time yet. He had more work to do. And so that's what the rest of the book of Luke is going to be about. But my question for you this morning is, do you have ears to hear? And listen, if, if you're thinking, oh, I know somebody, I, I know somebody who does not listen. I, have you met my husband? Like, I know somebody that does not listen. Like, have you, let me introduce you to my kids. Like, I know somebody who won't receive correction. I I told somebody this the other day, and they told me I was crazy. If you're thinking, I know someone that won't listen, I don't think I have to say it. You might want to check your own heart. And if you're still thinking, but my agenda's really good. I've got a good plan. 
I'm going to get all these followers. I'm going to do it all for Jesus. Jesus doesn't need the crowd. He didn't come for the crowd. He came for you. That you would know him. And he came to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Not your favor. So this morning, just ask yourself that question. Man, where am I at on this? Man, do I, if, if I'm sitting in that temple, in that synagogue, if I'm sitting in there and I hear Jesus say that, do I say, oh man, I had it all wrong? Or do I follow the crowd out to the cliff and say, get out of here. I need someone about my agenda. Let's pray. Father, this morning, it is our confession that our agenda is so often, so often central to our lives. That we have a good plan. That we've laid it all out, that we know how it should play out. And Father, it is my prayer that our corporate confession as a body would be that our plan is too small, too short-sighted. And the best thing we could do would be to get on board with your agenda and your plan. The kingdom of God in the name of Jesus. Father, convict us of our sin that would throw Jesus off a cliff in the name of our own agenda. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.